The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to the Bleachers. Of course, if you have been tuned in to us for a while, you know who we are and what we're about. My name is Jeff Blum. I played 14 years in Major League Baseball, and I've got my good buddy across the way in David Tuttle, who has a great deal of experience in the baseball world. We both played collegiately. We both played professionally. And now we talk shop on a podcast. And we have kind of transitioned into a different realm for us where we're going to maybe be speaking to people outside of the game of baseball. And this is one of those special podcasts where we're actually going to be able to talk to an astronaut. But before we get to Clayton Anderson, who is going to be our special guest on this podcast, I got to bring in my buddy, David Tuttle. It's been a little while since we've chatted. How are things in the Tuttle household? How is David Tuttle doing? (laughs) I'm doing great, Blummer, and uh, it's good to hear that you're doing well. I uh, I do. I like the new format. Obviously, if you haven't listened to our most recent podcast, it was the uh, PGA, to, uh, I guess the PGA Championship kind of prelude with John Adams. And then, as mm-hmm. you mentioned today, we have an astronaut. We have had an astrophysicist on this podcast before, but never an astronaut. Look and at us. To be honest with you, I've never met an astronaut. So I, it sounds like you've met quite a few, Blummer, but... Uh, you know, this is exciting for me. My first uh, foray in uh, interview format and discussion with an astronaut. But uh, what what's been your experience in being there in Houston? Right, Houston, we have a problem. Um, you know, you you've bumped mm-hmm. into a few astronauts, but uh, that's that's not unique to you. But uh, but pretty exciting, I would I would assume. No, it's pretty cool. You know, and we're going to hit on this when we when you listen to the interview with uh, Clayton Anderson, who has been to space. You know, we talk about it during that podcast where, you know, you have dreams as a kid. I want to be a firefighter. I want to play a professional sport. There's certain things. And going to space was definitely one of those things. And it didn't happen until they landed on the moon. And Clayton will talk about that, uh, about he got inspired to potentially be an astronaut and how hard it is to get there, some of the parallels that are there. But being here in Houston, I've had a chance to go out and uh, and visit the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, where they actually have the space station sunk in you know a, a billion gallons of water, uh, where they do the training. I've been able to go actually and I've walked Mission Control, where they actually like Tuttle just referenced uh, Houston. We have a problem. I've actually been able to walk through there and kind of tour some of those facilities. But I'm just fascinated with. The idea of space, I'm fascinated with the ability to go to space, and we're going to find out that uh, Clayton uh, is going to enlighten us on some of that stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah, it's awesome. So um, I guess I don't know if we're doing the video format anymore, but nobody asked about the Band-Aid by my eye. So I, I was curious. Uh, you know, is that where they put the electrode to, for the treatment plan? What do we got? <laughs> That's exactly right. So, uh, so it's funny. I mean, we always have public service announcements on here, but uh, I usually, I think once a year, get something removed by a dermatologist. And I'm like, gosh, oh, man, me too. I wore sunblock and I wore a hat every day, even though we were out in you know the Tucson sun or the Florida sun, West Palm Beach, whatever it may be. And uh, yeah, just yesterday, I got uh, two stitches and got a little... A little basal cell thing removed, and I'm good to go. Obviously, but uh, but thanks for thanks for asking about the old uh, band aid aru. <laughs> yeah, so enjoy the interview. We've got Clayton C. Anderson, an actual astronaut, on the podcast, joining us here in the bleachers. Enjoy it. I don't. I don't think as an, I would make it as an astronaut. I showed up like you know one <laughs> one minute before the podcast is no. supposed to start. <laughs> it's I think weird. like in. Like in baseball, you know, five, if you're five minutes late, or I'm sorry, five minutes early, you're late. So yeah. you got to be there much, much, uh, much more ahead of time. Kind of depends <laughs> on your commander, you know. Some of them are <laughs> a little more anal than others. <laughs> uh, well, Jeff is my commander, so we, we'll have to debrief on this after the uh, after the podcast. <laughs> no, I'll yell at him later. I won't do it here on air. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. No, seriously. It, it's an honor. Clayton, thank you for coming on, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because typically in the past, we've kind of hung out, called it the Bleacher Blums. We've talked a lot of baseball. We've talked a lot of Astros. And we've kind of hit that uh, that plateau, so to speak. And we want to expand our our reach a little bit and maybe abuse our friendships. And that's the beauty in knowing who Clayton C. Anderson is, who is a, 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 is going to be the topic of our Bleacher Blums podcast right here. He is an astronaut. But we are going to go all the way back to his childhood, maybe talk a little bit about how he got interested uh, in where he's at now, what it took to get here, because I think Tuttle and I are fascinated by it. And, you know, it's one of those things, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be a ball player. You want to be a firefighter. You know, you want to be an astronaut. And Clayton, thank you for coming on. And how are you doing? Uh, Where are you at right now? And, And what's going on with you? All's good. Thanks for having me on. I do want to, I have to start with one quick baseball story, if that's okay, because. Oh, we got plenty my, of time. Yeah. My son Cole uh, played football and basketball at Westbrook Intermediate School with a young man that you may recognize his name. It's He's Corey Jolks. Hey. And love so. Love Corey Jolks. Yeah. And so it's very been very exciting to see Corey. Uh, fight his way into the big show, right? And especially given the fact that I was on the sidelines and and in the gym yelling at referees when Corey and my my son were shooting hoop and and playing football together in junior high. And the other cool part of this is right before I – I'm in Omaha, Nebraska now running a museum, which we can talk about. But right before I left Houston, one of the last things I did was throw a first pitch at the uh, Skeeters – no, I'm sorry (laughs) – the Space Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I still do it too. Trust me. Yeah, and I threw a first pitch at the Space Cowboys. Well, Corey was on the Space Cowboys team at the time, right? And he was out warming up in the outfield, and and I asked somebody if you know if I could say hi to him, and and then they kind of, eh, yeah, I don't know. And well, it would turn out that as I stood on the sideline there in front of their dugout, getting ready to walk out and throw out the first pitch, I was watching, right? And when Corey hit the dugout. Clay hit the dugout, and I reached over the the rail, and I said, hey, Corey, I don't know if you remember me. And he goes, of course I do, Mr. Anderson. He stuck his hand out, and he shook my hand, and it was like 
again, I had died and gone to heaven, a, a Major League Baseball player who my kid uh, hung out with and played with, and I'd watched, and, and I know his father. Uh, it's just a great story for me uh, to know these young kids that, that do great things, right, that, that have that dream to be a professional baseball player and actually achieve that dream. And, and I totally get how hard it is. I totally get the, the trials and tribulations, but I love that. It's a great baseball story for me. Now it, it rivals the, the night that I got Jeff Blum to sign his Jersey <laughs> in front of the, the diamond club door uh, during the 2017 world series championship run. So there you go. Yeah, it's, it's coming full circle, and I, I greatly appreciate the friendship to begin with. And we've kept in contact, and uh, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I had no idea you had that connection to Corey Jilks, but how cool is it to have him actually come up? And yes, Mr. Anderson, good to see you again. <laughs> the, the, you know, you leave an impact on these guys. But uh, before you became the astronaut, what was it like in your childhood? Was this something you had dreamed of, or is this something that you just kind of worked towards, your parents pushed you towards? What was it? Uh, my parents never really pushed. Um, you know, I was in Ashland, Nebraska, which when I was a kid, it was about 1800 people, right? It wasn't a very big town. Um, and as, uh, my mother and I, uh, the, the way the story goes is I was nine years old per my memory when mom and dad got us up on Christmas Eve on 1968 and put us in front of a black and white TV. And we watched the Apollo 8 astronauts go behind the moon for the first time. And back in those days, all you got from NASA was a feed of mission control, right? That's all you saw. And it was black and white with a bunch of dudes that had hair kind of like Tuttle. And <clears throat> maybe not, they didn't have it slicked like that, but right, crew cuts and, and um, white shirts, skinny black ties, pocket protectors, all that good stuff. And mm -hmm. as a kid, a nine-year-old kid, I'm watching with my brother and sister, and I'm fascinated by the chatter, right, what I'm hearing, because you, you can't see much. And the guy that's leading the room is the flight director, and he's barking out orders. And he says, I need to go, no, go for translunar injection burn. Retro, go. Fido, go. Jeepo, go. Surgeon, go. Ecom, go. Booster, go. <laughs> right? And then, and then they call the crew, and they ask them if they're going. I'm thinking, geez, do they really have a choice? I mean, they're in space. <laughs> so they go, and they, they go behind the moon, and this young nine-year-old's listening to all this, and it gets pretty silent, right, because it's just... It's just static because you can't transmit radio from behind the moon. And so I'm freaking out, you know, oh, my God, what has happened? Is a volcano on the backside. It erupted and blew him out of the sky or, you know, a Harry Potter dragon flew in and breathed fire all over him. I had no idea. There you go. And then they eventually come back around. But just before they break free of the rock, Mission Control's Capcom, the astronaut that talks to him, says, hey, uh, Apollo 8, Houston, over. And you get static, right? <sighs> And then he calls again, Apollo 8, Houston, over, more static. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is bad. Well, then all of a sudden you hear the Quindar tone, the little beep, and he, you hear the words, Houston, Apollo 8. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus or something to that effect, right? They had made it around the backside of the moon. And I'm like, oh, 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 I want to do that. I want to do that. <clears throat> so wow. while I also wanted to be a Major League Baseball player and a professional basketball player and a professional football player, um, wow. you know, none of those were in my, on my radar, maybe as much as that was just because of the coolness factor. You know, I would play every sport imaginable through junior high, high school, even in college. And it became pretty evident pretty soon that 
uh, baseball was my best sport, but I still didn't have what it took because back then there were no camps and, and you didn't play baseball all year mm -hmm. round, right? You had American Legion in the summer and that was pretty much it. So, so there you go. There's the, the original story. My mother would tell you I was six years old and that we talked about me becoming an astronaut, but I don't remember that part. Mm -hmm. Well, wow. here, Clay, here's the, I think this is more interesting is to Jeff's point, you end up wanting to be a firefighter, a baseball player, and an astronaut. What we didn't point out is you don't usually pick one of those. You just mm -hmm. want to be all of those things. And right. I think you articulated that really well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, kind of what Jeff said, and we're not anti-sports on this podcast. So you mentioned your early sports career. What, what One of the things that we talk about when we started this podcast was athletics, but also, you know, being a father and kind of how, you know, playing baseball for a living, which both of us did, and then maybe even, you know, being an astronaut, but how those things shape, you know, how you parent and how you live your life. So what I would like to ask you is how those sports, whether you wanted to be, a, you know, you said baseball is your best sport, but baseball, basketball, football, Jeff and I played all of those sports as well growing up and then, you know, obviously got honed into one. But how did those kind of shape your astronaut career, believe it or not, in terms of either determination or skill sets or anything like that? And then when did you know that, okay, baseball is your best sport, but when did you know that you were going to probably pursue another avenue? So there's kind of a lot in there, but really the sports mm -hmm. influences and then when you got kind of on your path. Well, the good thing about sports is the aspect of teamwork and competition. Um, you know, Many kids play many sports at different skill levels, and some are pretty good, right? Their skill levels are pretty good. They're just not good enough to get them to the show or to the NBA or wherever it is, right? I mean, that's that's a pretty elite group. Well, so is astronaut. And so here's this kid from Ashland, Nebraska, thinking, how the hell am I ever going to be one of those guys? Never. And, and so the difference to me is that all those things are the same except how you get there. You have to apply to be an astronaut. Right, you have to put in a government ap application, and you have to hope somebody reads it and sees something on there that catches their eye, right? So they don't throw it in the trash, and then then that application is pretty much the same for everybody, right? It's really hard to delineate yourself, um, you know, in, in baseball, right? If you have the, the if you're a lefty and you throw heat. And you can go to the mound, right? There aren't many lefty heat throwers in the world these days, right? So that gives you an up. But when you're competing with people with PhDs and, and military jet fighter pilots and MIT graduates, you know, I went to freaking Hastings College in Iowa State, you know, <laughs> and people go, where? And yeah. so when I got to NASA as an engineer, my goal was to just be the best engineer I could. Uh, to learn to grow. And, and I was moving down a path that was taking me into management, right? As a leader, not as a, a leader of a team, not a participant on the team. And the astronaut thing was a constant application for 15 years and 14 rejections. Um, but what, what made my app stand out, I think, down the line in the end was that I had taken a job that was totally out of my wheelhouse. Uh, you know, I was a baby engineer and I did all that kind of stuff. But then I became the director of the Johnson Space Center's Emergency Operations Center. Oh. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means I worry about hurricanes, terrorists, uh, bombs, fires, medical emergencies, right? Her all that crazy stuff. Well, that was out of my wheelhouse. But I had the leadership skills and the personal personality skills to bring to coalesce 
a team of people together that didn't play together previously. And I think that was the part. It also gave me exposure to the management people at NASA at Johnson. And, you know, anytime you get good exposure, right, if you're if you're Dennis Quaid and you're at some school in West Texas and you go to a minor league tryout and somebody sees you throw heat, right, that's your exposure. That's the thing you can capitalize on. And I was just lucky. You know, yeah, am I smart enough, I guess. Am, am I good looking enough? Of course. <laughs> Not a baby. Of course. But, <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the competition I was against, I don't know how I, how I was able to get that opportunity. But once I got that opportunity, then I could show what I brought to the table. And that's when I think that I finally began to believe in my brain that I belonged here. I belonged with all those people. Yeah, they had, they flew F-18s and they killed people and shot down aircraft and all those great things. But I could do it too, just in a different way. And I think that's what kids need today, right? As they go through all these sports, that's why I love kids that play every sport. I love kids that are in music. I love kids that are in their community, yep. right? All that comes together and coalesces to give them that opportunity to to make that step to wherever it is they're trying to go. Yeah, so luck is a residue of design and and what you said is I mean it's so apropos because there people just like health and wellness they're always looking for the magic pill, the formula. Yeah. And yeah. what I've learned over the years from a competitor standpoint, it's always great to say what you said at the outset which is teamwork and grit and determination and you know, hard work. You know, you practice 3 or 4 days a week. A competitor at this level and Jeff's level is what I've learned is we've played the game more than most people have played the game. And we've come in second, third, fifth. You mentioned your applications. You came in, you know, every year like, nope, rejected. MIT guy got me this year. A fighter pilot got you the next year. And you just kept submitting the application. And I think that, you know, you mentioned your sports career, but I think that that hopefully in hindsight as we get older is the key to this whole thing. I mean, that is certainly a puzzle, which is don't give up on your dream. That's really, right. sorry, Blummer. I, I just, I had to get no, it. No, go it's good. That's why we're here. I think, you know, as I applied 15 times, I guess I have the record <laughs> for the most applications and people talk about that. And, and for me, though, that application was easy. Right. When you do the first one and you have to gather all the information and where'd you live for the last 300 years and, you know, and what are your degrees and all, all those accomplishments you have to write on paper for the government. Once that was over, then then it became easy. What, what have I done in the last year that's different from before? How can I add that to my resume, so to speak, so that they'll see that I'm continuing to grow in certain ways? Um, yeah, I went and got a pilot's license you know, yeah, I got scuba certified, but I did those things because I wanted to, because that was part of what I wanted to do in life. And a lot of astronaut candidates, they only do things that they think are going to make them a better astronaut candidate. You know, Clay, what minor degree should I get at college to make me a better astronaut? I don't know. <laughs> what do you like? <laughs> what are you good at? Right. You know, should I learn to switch hit, you know, to, to make it to the majors? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How good are you in the right side? If you're good enough on the right side, you don't need to be on the left side, right? All those kind of things that people talk about. Um, and, and like you said, luck is was a huge part of that and good timing. Um, oh, man. You know, right? You guys know at the professional sports level, there's, there's timing involved, right? Somebody goes down in a certain 
minor league affiliate or, or whatever, and people start to move and, and get bumped up, right? And they get their shot. Mm -hmm. And then it's what you bring to the table when you get your shot. So when I finally got the opportunity to be named as an astronaut, uh, the competition was, oh my God, it was incredible. And people, and I don't know what it's like in pro sports, but in the astronaut world, people push each other away, push them around, right? Get out of the way. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to this guy. Get out of the way. Hey, I'm better than you. Get out of the way. There was a lot of that mm -hmm. crap going on, and I didn't like it. Uh, and I don't play that game, right? So uh, an astronaut no. gave me advice one time, keep your head down and keep coloring. And yeah. I tried to follow well, the, that. The politics and all this stuff is awful. I can't imagine. It's probably even worse for, for – uh, NASA and things like that, because there are so many other entities involved in that. But you talked about, you know, the the fourteen uh, rejections. You finally get picked up, and that's one of the things that you know. Talking about baseball, it's one thing, and Corey Jolks is going through this right now with the Astros. It's one thing to get to the show. Right. It's how do you stay in the show, and that's probably a similar thing for you because once they say, yeah. "Hey, you're accepted into the astronaut program," you're not immediately put on a space shuttle and sent to space and getting to do everything you want. You still have to qualify for a mission. Is that right? Absolutely. And in honesty, in the class before me was 96, and three of those astronauts that were picked out of 44 never went to space. Oh, they, man. They actually got moved to different jobs. And and I don't agree with that. I think if you're good enough to be get picked, you're good enough to fly once, right? I mean, I did it. it does, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do this. You just have to be <laughs> smart enough to know you don't know everything. <laughs> you have to be smart enough you don't know everything, right? You have to be willing to learn. And you have to be willing to play well with others. And if you can do those things, you'll survive and be successful on a space flight. You might need help when you're up there. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I use the toilet again? I, it's clogged up. Help. Right? You got to be <laughs> willing to ask help and, and then take the, the heat because you, you, A, didn't remember the course they taught you or, A, B, you pushed the wrong button. I don't know what it is. But, but you have to be willing to admit that you don't know. And if you can do all those things, I believe – Selected astronaut candidates all should deserve to fly, but those three people didn't get to. And I can go into some of the reasons why, but I don't, we don't need to, right? But mm -hmm. it was politics again, a lot of it. So, no, you know what's funny about you saying that if you qualify to get into the space program, you get selected as an astronaut, get everybody to go to space, enjoy that opportunity that you work so hard for. I've said that when I got to the World Series, I know everybody hates me bringing this up, but 2005, I get to the World Series and I get to play in it. And it is one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life because that's the pinnacle of where, that's why you played. And I'm with you and I've told everybody, I mean, there's a lot of people that we all hate in our jobs or we hate in the game of baseball, but to a man, I wish everybody would get the opportunity to play in the World Series because there's yes. nothing like it. And yes. that's just, it, it kind of gives you the validation of why you work so hard. So I can't believe that, you know, 44 candidates and you're and 41 of them are going to space. It's unreal. Three of them get left behind. That's got to be hard. Yeah, it was hard and it caused its its own uh, issues amongst them and the core and their mm -hmm. class. Uh, we had a guy in my class, brilliant guy, uh, he was what they called a wizzo in the Navy, so he sat in the back seat in a jet, F-14, I think. And he was brilliant, good guy. I liked him. Uh, but he, he and his wife, just after a while, they decided, eh, we're done. And they left, and he never flew. So, you know, kudos to him for having the guts to understand the situation enough to put his family first mm -hmm. and, and his wife and kids and that sort of thing. Because that's hard to do, right? And, no, that's an excellent so, point. Sometimes your selfishness, right? 
I'm going to be an astronaut and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I don't care who I step on on the way and including my family. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of divorce and a lot of Tom Catton and astronaut world. Yep. and uh, Nothing like baseball. No Tom Catton and uh, divorce in the world of baseball. I was going to say, I'd love so the we're, new terminology. We're, we're, I'm going to have to steal some of this. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to bring some new yeah, to locker, uh, locker room There's some talk. serious parallels between professional <laughs> yeah. athletics and, and yes. NASA here, I guess. Yes, sir. <laughs> hey, so I, I have something funny, Clay, and then a question for you. I, uh, so I had a pitching coach when you brought up, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go into space. That That's funny, obviously. It does take a rocket scientist, but not to be an astronaut necessarily. But I had a pitching coach that used to say, come on, boys, this ain't rocket scientry. That's what he said all the time. <laughs> I'm like, so... So we've adopted rocket scientry as a as a even with my kids a joke like come on kids it's not rocket scientry uh yeah it, it I think it might be a little deeper than rocket scientry <laughs> but uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit you talked about when you were eight or nine or I guess nine years old your mom thought it was six but when you actually saw them go around the moon and all that why don't you talk a little bit about we talked about some of the folks that didn't get to go into space but you know your fifteenth try you got in. And you've probably told the story a million times, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the kind of the preparation for your mission? And then, you know, a, a little highlight from the mission. I'd love to hear what it was like um, to be in space and then to come back, I guess. That, that's probably the story that people ask you the most. But hey, here, your first time on our podcast, why don't you share it with our listeners? It'd be great. And it doesn't have to be the only time I'm on your podcast, just to let yes. you know. Yes. Um, it does so not. That's a great question. And, so, you know, I got picked in 1998 and I flew in 2007 for the first time. So that's wow. what, nine years, right? That's a long damn time. And it's a long damn time not knowing that you're going to get a fly at all. Um, and so the preparation is for astronauting is unique. The first couple of years, you're, it's like you're at basic training in the military and they teach you how to march and how to tie your shoes and how to pack your pack. And they teach you all the basic stuff. You fly around the country to all the NASA centers and, you know, they love astronauts and they want to be with you and they tell you all the cool stuff they're doing <clears throat> at their various centers. So it's very educational, right? You go to a lot of classes, um, but nothing nothing really is um, critical, I guess, until you get assigned to fly. And that's the pinnacle that everybody wants, right? Maybe that's equivalent to the call up to the majors because you still have to prove that when you're assigned to fly that you're worthy of flying on that flight. So it just puts the microscope tighter on on what you're doing because they're watching you the whole time. But once you get assigned, then now you have a, a crew of six or seven people that are that are intimately involved with you every day. But management's still watching. The commander's watching, and they talk to management, and they say, "Well, hey, Clay, he really sucks when we ask him to do this," and you know that kind of stuff. So that uh, selection for me was long down the road. Um, I would be you get your basic training, and then they give you a job, and they give you a job in the astronaut office that supports the other astronauts who are currently flying or soon to fly. So my job was, I was the space station's electrical power guy, which means I had to learn all about the solar arrays and and the circuitry and and all those kind of things because I was the rep to the groups that were either going to design something new or change something or maybe do a spacewalk to fix something, to take a battery out and put in a new battery, that kind of thing. And and that was a lot of fun, but you still don't get the respect because they look at you and go, "Uh, well, you ain't flown yet, have you? Uh, no. Well, then what the hell you know, right? And mm. it's like, 
I've been through training for like 10 years now and I know something <laughs> and I'll get to fly bit. later. But, but it took me a while until I got the phone call and it wasn't the one I expected. It was, uh, not, not the big dog. If you get assigned to a flight, usually the big dog, the head astronaut calls you and says, Blummer, you're going up on STS, blah, blah, blah. Right. And you mm-hmm. and wet your pants and go tell your family. So, but I didn't get that. I got it from a subordinate and she said, Hey, you know, uh, I got asked a question. Are you interested in flying long duration on the space station? And I said, well, yeah, I, but you know, which one gets me, how do I get to space faster on a shuttle flight or learning how to fly on the station? And she said, well, you got to ask the boss. So I called the boss and he says, I think if you go to the station, you'll get to space faster. And I said, yes, which then the next thing I know, I'm in Russia (laughs) and I'm learning to speak Russian and I'm living over there a month at a time away from my wife and kids. And you talk about, you know, getting stuck in single A in Alaska. (laughs) Well, that's being in Star City in Russia, man. Jeez. (laughs) Hey, I've been there. Don't make fun of it. I live. You've been where? Alaska or minor league? Well, both. I played summer baseball in Alaska, and I've been in the minor league, single A, driving on a bus, uh, probably for longer than I should have. So there you go. (laughs) But it was, you know, that that taught me because I had doubts then. When I'm in Moscow in February, you know, and it's eight feet of snow and it's dark at three o'clock in the afternoon, and you know, doesn't get light till one o'clock. You know, all that stuff, it was very traumatic for me. And my expectations were never set to that, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it's the same thing for a kid in the minors, right, who figures out he does have to travel on a bus for eight hours between games and eat McDonald's or whatever they give you, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so here I am in Moscow uh, learning to, trying to learn to speak a language that doesn't even use our alphabet with guys that some of them are a little hungover from a vodka binge the night before teaching you you know about the russian space station and ya dumo što je to очень интересно потому что много дней мне нужно говорить по-русски и я не понимаю ситуации so you know Damn. i did okay but um I just said Blummer's the best looking guy I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. That, that's what I said. <laughs> but, that's unbelievable, though. You have to yeah. learn a system like you're talking about and learn another language to be able to communicate to get up to space. So, I mean, literally, they threw every obstacle in front of you to see if you could overcome it to, to get your spot to go to space. Yeah, it wasn't just me, right? In order to fly on the station, the lifeboat is the Russian Soyuz capsule. So the Russians being the Russians said, we ain't writing any of that in English. You got to learn Russian. And so that was the the ticket item that you had to pass. You had to speak Russian well enough to understand the Soyuz capsule and be able to survive if you had to abandon the station. And, you know, I get all that. but how much, how easy or hard would it have been to print the procedures in Russian and English? Because we did yeah. that on the space station, right? The international language of the space station is English, but the Soyuz is Russian. So, and the Russians didn't, early Russians didn't want to learn English and early English guys didn't really want to learn Russian. And um, But I did enough to get by and to, to survive, so... You, you brought up politics. There you go. I mean, just at our DMV down the road, I think the driver's test comes in 17 <laughs> to 20 languages. So, I mean, you know, the politics aspect, like, hey, you want to fly with Russian, you know, and, and you really wanted to go to space. So, you yeah. know, you touched on that before. So anyway. And you don't have a choice so. at that point, right? 
you, you no. can't say no because if you no. say no, they say see ya, and uh, right. yeah. you know. And it was it was fun. It's I call it type two fun, right? It wasn't fun when I was doing it, but when I was done with it, it's kind of fun because you can look back and say, "Well, that was kind of fun when I saw the dead guy lying in the intersection in the middle of uh, northeast Moscow in the middle of the night, right, with a guy holding a submachine gun standing over him. That was fun." Right. <laughs> oh my gosh, type two fun. <laughs> there you go. So, so the politics aside, so you're you're in Russia. I mean, you kind of knew this might be your ticket to go. Um, there's got to be some. Uh, apprehension, I guess, hungover guys telling you, I mean, I don't know if they're the ones that are in charge of the launch as well or in charge of anything to do with when you're getting up to space. But, you know, like you said, type two fun. So, yeah, continue on. Well, you know, I got exposed to some really cool stuff. I did survival training in the winter in Moscow, um, right? I learned how to build a teepee. Uh, I got to go to uh, the mountains of Wyoming in the winter and do winter survival there. Uh, I did water survival and, and lived underwater in a habitat off of Key Largo, Florida for two weeks. Um, I traveled to Japan, to Canada, to Russia, to uh, Europe, um, you know, Germany, Italy, France. So this whole deal, this whole gig gave me a lot of opportunities that a small town kid from Nebraska would never have expected to get. And my family got to participate too. You know, my kids... Uh, when they were, I was getting ready to fly on the station, and so it was my last couple training exercises in Moscow, and, and NASA graciously <laughs> flew them over, and they spent uh, a couple weeks in Russia with me. And so they got to watch me train in the Russian cool. Hydro Lab, they, they call it, their underwater spacewalk training facility. Um, they got to watch me go through the center, centrifuge. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we had a date night one night. One of the other astronauts babysat my kids and Cole and Sutton watched movies, kid movies, while Susan and I got on bicycles (laughs) and rode down a dirt road to a little Russian restaurant that we sat in a booth outside and we had dinner together, not realizing that when we rode back, it was going to be pitch dark (laughs) and we're on bicycles on a dirt road, right? But those kind of experiences... Uh, made my wife and my relationship stronger. Uh, they were great experiences for the kids, although, uh, you know, Sutton petting feral dogs with fleas and mange was a little scary, but <laughs> but it's it's all good stuff, right? It's, it's it like is. the first time you take your little kids out on the diamond at, at the all-star game or whatever it is, and they're throwing the ball around. I love watching those things when, yeah. when the TV stations show them because it is so human. It is so important. Um, mm-hmm. and that aspect of family is really important to me. No, it's actually a great perspective. And I think it's great that you mentioned that your kids were able to watch you go through the process and then obviously understand what you were actually doing and uh, getting the opportunity. Uh, we are talking to Clayton Anderson, astronaut. Uh, he's written a book called The Ordinary Spaceman. And uh, it's, it's a great read and the experiences are unbelievable. And you know, we talk about baseball, and sometimes you hear guys compare their experiences to what me- maybe the military or the mentality, but there's a there's a serious problem in that logic because, and even for you being a NASA astronaut, did when you're going through this process and you're doing the survival training underwater, you're doing the survival training out in the wilderness, there's a serious difference between sport military and being an astronaut and it's the life and death aspect of it 
Can you talk a little bit about understanding what you were putting, the risk you were putting yourself in, and then having the mentality to work through some of the processes, mm -hmm. knowing that there could be a catastrophic failure that doesn't mean you lose a game. It means you lose life. That's what's crazy yeah. to me. Well, the way I would answer that, Blummer, is I was a family escort for the Columbia mission, which meant that mm. the commander, Rick Husband, had picked me and a couple other astronauts to tend to his entire crew's family units uh, pre-launch during the mission and post-launch when they were coming home to land. And so I was honored to do that job and had no expectation that I would get asked ever to be a family escort. So when he asked, and I respected him greatly, he was a man of faith, a brilliant astronaut, a great family guy, a fighter pilot, although he, he had the right stuff. And so did his crew. And so the honor to do that uh, was incredible and the opportunity was incredible until that day they were supposed to come home and they didn't. And that's when it turned into an issue, right, that I never ever would have imagined uh, that I would be in that situation. I survived that only because of my faith uh, and mm -hmm. my, my own upbringing. And, you know, how do you know what to say? How do you know how to act how, when people have just lost uh, their family, their spouse, right? Um, that was an incredible shaping for me. And, and to go back to the original question, you know, NASA trains the fear out of you right? You're basically so worried about not making a mistake that that's your fear, right? You know, it's it's not uh -huh. that I'm going to die. It's that I don't want to make a mistake and be that guy. But I did have to sit down um, prior to launch and write letters to my family in case I never came back. Uh, that's in my book that, that Jeff cited. Um, both of the, well, there's one letter because I kind of did one and then I modified it the second time. Um, but that's a hard that was hard for me to write that letter um, and to imagine. think that they may one day have to read it. Fortunately, they didn't yeah. until the book came out. They read it. But uh, <laughs> but I don't I was never scared. To die. That's that's the that's yeah, that's the way they want you to read it. Right. In a book later on or t sharing it with you. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the question I have in that in that little subtlety is, yeah, they train it out of you. And I think Blummer alluded to this, but. They train it out of you. They train it out of you, and you're ready to go. And right, your fe the the fear of making a mistake and maybe being more responsible for something bigger than just you um, certainly works. But when you actually get pen in hand to put to paper, regardless of how much they've trained it out of you, you like you said. I mean, the thoughts must have been. Um, gosh, you know, these have been so far removed and now right before you're going to go up into space, they kind of bring them to the forefront again. And now you're, you know, now you're in the spot where you're between the family. But, but I do think it sounds like you, the higher power of doing something that you want to do since you were a little kid as well. Like you, you kind of knew this was your calling at that point. I mean, maybe you could just shed a little more light on that. When you went pen to paper, you obviously realized, I don't know if gravity is the right word, but obviously that this isn't, you know, we just saw the the Titanic thing, right? That little, yeah. um, the submersible thing. And, you know, they talked about some of the challenges around that. But look, all these guys were very well aware of the risks. They had, you know, same thing. They were all certified to do what they were doing mm -hmm. and they didn't come home either. But maybe share, shed some, a little deeper kind of when you got pen in hand and wrote that and then what you thought about. There was a lot of anxiety, right? I, and maybe you can equate anxiety and fear, but <clears throat> it was mostly anxiety, right? there was no expectation of failure, no expectation that my submersible would implode 10 feet from the Titanic. 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure they thought the same, right? That, that this was an exciting experience that I've been wanting to do my whole life. Uh, there is a documentary out um, called Homemade Astronaut that was done by Nebraska Public Television uh, right after I flew the first time. Uh, and it's visible on the internet. And, and it, it does some poignant things with my wife. It asks her these type of questions. And the good thing about Susan was she had also worked at NASA for 32 years when she finally retired. So she knew, wow. she understood. There were a lot of astronaut spouses when they got picked to be astronauts, they had no clue that they could die. They had no clue they might have to go to Russia. It's like, oh, great communication in the family there. But <laughs> it, it's like, she knew that this was my dream and this was what I wanted to do. And, and when I penned that letter, that's kind of how I addressed it. You know, you guys have been by my side every day. You knew I wanted to do this. You put up with me when I was a pain in the ass coming back from Russia and being exhausted and, and, and having a fuse about this long, right? You dealt with all of that to allow me to live my dream. And I was very grateful to them for that. And I hope I taught my kids that that that's how they should be, right? That they should chase that dream and and do what they can to make it a reality, but to remember those around you, right? To remember that you never do any of this by yourself. Absolutely true. It's the same in professional sports. So I great I understand that greatly, but the gravity of it, pardon the pun, uh, is much greater. But that that's pretty heavy stuff to talk about. You're here. You've done it. You've made it. I want to talk a little bit about how many missions you how many missions were you on, and do you spent a great deal of time up in the International Space Station, man? I did two missions. So I launched on the shuttle Atlantis back in 2007. Um, but all they were doing was carrying the clay, the sack of potatoes up to dump him on the space station because I would end up staying there for five months. And Woo. Dis yeah, Discovery would come five months after what November of 2007. They would dock. They'd have a 10-day mission, and then I would go home with them. So they were my ride. Um, three years later, I would go back on Discovery to the space station for 15 days where we transferred cargo, um, did spacewalks, and brought trash home. Uh, I did do six spacewalks over my career, which that's an incredible experience that, uh, you know, who, who'd have thought I would go out in my own little spaceship called a EMU spacesuit and spend on my first EVA, my first spacewalk, seven hours and 41 friggin' minutes with a Russian dude crawling dude. around the space station doing work. I mean, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's like Marvel superhero type stuff, being able to do that. So, hey, I've, I've having been in Houston as long as I have and, and knowing people like you, and, and I've been to the, end, the neutral buoyancy lab. I've seen all this stuff. I've done the tours. I, I've asked several astronauts this question that I've met. What is, what is, when that door opens up, what is it like? Because <laughs> you're not looking at the bottom of a pool anymore. No. <laughs> Um, that's one of my favorite stories, Blummer, in, in that I was going out on my first spacewalk as the lead, right? I was the in charge, and I'd never done one before. <laughs> my partner was a Russian, a little miniature Russian. He wasn't very big. <laughs> and <laughs> and he, he and I spoke Runglish, right? And so we were going to be out there working together. And I'm opening the hatch because that's the job of the lead. So I'm floating weightless in the airlock, and the ground gives me the call that, hey, Clay, the pressure this, the in the way. airlock is zero. 
you you're go to open the hatch. So I crank the little lever and I lift up the hatch with one, my right hand and I push it back against the wall so it locks in place. And I'm looking at a three foot diameter hole of pure black, pure black, oh because the sun is oh on the other God. side of the earth. So you can't, there's no light. And the absence of light is different than the color black, right? <laughs> and so I'm, as I'm looking there floating, you have to get permission to egress to go outside. So I'm waiting on that. And I'm looking and little icicles, little ice crystals are flying from my back left side of my suit. And they're shooting out into the blackness. And that's because there was slight pressure, just slight pressure inside the airlock that was pushing that stuff to the vacuum of space, right? Because now mm -hmm. you are in outer freaking space where there's no nothing. <laughs> and so watching these icicles, I have one hand on the handrail with three fingers like this. I'm floating and I'm waiting to hear that call. And I'm not thinking about anything except I was born to be here in this place right now doing this. And that is honest to God what was going through my head before I stepped. So you, you were calm. Yeah. Until I actually got the egress call, and then I had to go out that hole. Then I had a little pucker factor. <laughs> That's like good to said, hear. It, it ain't the pool, Blummer. And, and in the pool, you can see the floor. <laughs> right? Yeah, the there's bottom, like, right? there's something. It's only 40 feet away, but you can see it. And when you, when you dump into the blackness of space with your headlights on, that's all you get. And that was pretty surreal, right? And, and now you go back to the fear factor and the anxiety. Now the thing going in my head is no longer I'm supposed to be here. It's don't F this up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was your training. Your training yeah. was don't F this up. I mean, that's really what they beat into your head anyway. Right. You know, Jeff and I, we can relate to the pucker factor. People have asked us that before. Oh, yeah. You're playing in front of 30 or 40,000 people. And then, you know, this column comes over you and you kind of have the same experience. But I just can't. I just can't get away from the fact that we're trying to compare being a, a professional athlete with like being right? in space, you know, like it just doesn't seem fair. I mean, we can relate, right? We can get the experience like we're, we're doing comparables in our head. But um, I mean, that, that just must be, yeah. It's the same. Yeah, it's yeah, but then like you said, so then so the Russian guy was with you. Was he in the airlock at that time, and you got to go out first, and then was he right behind you, or I mean, was yeah, that you, the, how did that go? Head to feet, right? So I'm oh, here yeah. looking out the hole, and he his head's behind me, right? So I'm gonna go dive down, and then he's gonna come out that way. So oh, wow. and, and there's a plan, and you've trained this thousands of times, right? And and Fyodor was a good dude. He knew what he was doing. He didn't listen very well, but um, I had to, you know, I'm out of the airlock and right into the, the thing, I'm having to speak Russian to him, right? Because oh, it was so God. funny. He came up to me the week before our spacewalk. He had done two Russian spacewalks in the month of April or May. And I had arrived in June and our first spacewalk was July. So that whole week he came, float over to me at night and he'd go, Clay, Clay, spacewalk, go slow. Be careful. Go slow. Be careful. <laughs> I got it, Fyodor. Good advice. Thanks, man. A couple days later, he'd float back. He'd go, Clay, spacewalk. Go slow. Be careful. Okay, Fyodor, I'm good. That's great advice, buddy. We'll, we'll get this. We'll knock it out, right? So that day, I go out, and I'm setting tethers up and asking for him to hand me out crap, right, to clank on the handrail so we don't lose it. And he comes out, finally, and he disappears, I'm, I'm messing with something, and I look up, and he's freaking gone. Wait, what? 
Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> he's crawled off to do to go to his first job, right? And I'm going, this ain't good. <clears throat> and I'm supposed yeah. to be in charge, so I get in my best Russian vo- voice, and I go, Fyodor, Ostanovit, Sechas, stop now. We're supposed to do this together. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty quiet, right? You don't hear anything. Clay, okay. And he comes back. <laughs> Clay, I, I went mean, too fast, Clay. That, yeah, and that's that's my first, like, 15 minutes of my first space In the walk, middle like, of oh, nowhere God. in space. That's unbelievable. At least I didn't see him floating off in the distance, you know. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, all of a sudden, every tra- every tragic space movie comes to mind right there. Yeah, um, unbelievable. Hey, we're getting to learn the personality of you, Clay, and it's obviously entertaining, and we've clicked for a while now, but... You had you you took it upon yourself to do something special while you were in the International Space Station, where you were doing trivia and stuff with everybody oh, yeah. back home. Yeah, well, that that didn't fly over as well as as I thought it might. So, part of it my sounded goal, like a good time when I read about it. It, it, it was for me. So, being the only American on the space station, right, with two Russians, the cultures are different. And I had gone up with the idea that I wanted to entertain. I don't know if you guys have ever watched NASA TV, <laughs> but uh. <laughs> right. And so I knew that if people were going to be watching, I wanted to give them something that was more fun, right? It, Cause yes. I could. And so I had planned to go up every day and I did a couple things. I did trivia questions for the ground, which Huntsville loved it. They, they, there were two control centers back in that time frame and NASA Johnson and Huntsville both played, right? Cause I targeted them. And in the mm-hmm. evening before I'd go to bed, I'd say, you know, Hey, it's time for trivia. And I'd throw out a question. Of course they all Google the answer, right? It's not like they really knew trivia cause they just type it in their computer, yeah, but I would challenge them to race and I would give them, you know, different stuff. And I had a great time doing that because I had two trivia books, a general one and a Nebraska one. Well, being the first and only Nebraska astronaut, part of my my drive was to educate people about all things Nebraska. And so that was the most fun to, to throw those questions out at them. And I also did something. I would get on the horn right before bed and I'd go, Houston, station on space to ground two. It's time for famous cities from Nebraska. And <laughs> I, I would, I'd taken the census from 2003 or four or something. I'd taken the census and I'd put an Excel spreadsheet together with every freaking city in the state of Nebraska alphabetically. And then the population. And then I had a column and I was going to mark the date that I announced them as part of famous cities from Nebraska. I named every single city, 893 of them, during my five months in space because (laughs) you can go to NASA and get copies, recordings of those things. And so I thought, well, educators, how cool would it be? To hear yeah. someone say Ainsworth, Nebraska, population thirty-seven or whatever it was, and yeah. so it was fun for me to share Nebraska. That's awesome. Lincoln, corn. Uh, I mean, I just that's all I got. <laughs> and Tom Osborne Memorial Memorial <laughs> Stadium was the third largest city every Saturday of a home football game. So Memorial yep. Stadium was included as a famous city yeah. from Nebraska. That's incredible. That's awesome. <laughs> Tell me, uh, you said that they weren't so happy about it. What what's yeah. the, what was the tension there is that you were using um, 
this is a serious mission on serious time and you're using it to make light of things or what was this a, it was it politics again yeah they just had tight panties i mean you know <laughs> i i understand i'd been a capcom right i'd sat in the control center and done this with the space station astronauts well i had fun with them i didn't you know you'll li- if you listen ever to nasa tv and you hear the astronaut go station this is houston on space to ground two the serial number you need is serial number S slash N number five niner Juliet three seven two. How copy? And then yeah. somebody will read it back and they'll go, good copy. You know, okay, I get that. <laughs> I get it. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, hey. I'm going to start watching NASA thing. TV. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty dull. But <laughs> but I tried to make it fun. Um, as a Capcom on the ground, I made it fun when I could. And as an astronaut coming down to the ground, I, and for NASA TV, I tried to make it as fun as I could. You know, we had labels on, on bags that would be delivered by the shuttle or by cargo vehicles. And they were green, and they were yellow, and they were white. And so they came to you. Um, as a green label because that meant to me green was grass that meant ground yellow was sun so that meant space and then white was it wasn't going anywhere so if it was a yellow label coming up it was the sun because it was coming to space if i was supposed to send it home later i would give it a green label because it was going down to the ground for grass and then if it was white it was going to remain on the station for a while and and I told people that on NASA TV, you know, by just telling what I was doing, what I was thinking. And, and people would send me emails say, oh, that is so cool. We love that. It's funny. It's cool. It's easy to remember. All the ground hated it. Because, <laughs> you know, it wasn't official enough. It wasn't formal enough, you yeah. know. So you almost made it s- too simple for them. They wanted a little more complicated, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of a pain in the ass, you know. Uh, one one I time in my mission, that. I was working really hard in the airlock. And... Um, the Russians were bringing a progress cargo vehicle. So, so Fyodor and Oleg, the two Russians, were worried about docking that to the station. I had no dog in the hunt. I trusted them. They'd been trained. So why would I go get in their knickers? So I stayed in the airlock doing my job. And every time I called with a question on the ground, they, they gave me a pissy response because they were all watching mm-hmm. the progress cargo vehicle come dock for the station because they were more worried about that than they were worried about me. Right. And so I didn't get much help that day. So at the end of the day, when I called down to summarize my day, I said, hey, Houston, I'm a taxpayer. And today was a pretty bad expenditure of my tax dollars. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, people. Oh, fear. People freaked. I got in trouble. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the nice thing about being in space, I'm now this is an assumption since I haven't been there is. You say that, and your reprimands come in like maybe three months later when they actually can get their hands around your neck. <laughs> this is like, you know, hey, nana, 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 I'm going to say what I want, and, you know, you can, repercussions be damned, right? Well, yeah, and I would never fly again on the station because I was told I did not have the temperament for long-duration spaceflight and that they oh, had boy. far better choices than me. But fortunately, I got to go again on a shuttle flight because it was short, and they thought I wouldn't blow a gasket in 15 days. But, you know, I did it both, so and I did it well. <laughs> we didn't make say. any mistakes. So it's good. Sounds like you're trying to keep your sanity, so you probably could have stayed up there a little bit longer. Hey, yes. Is, is, is uh, floating in space as much fun as it looks? Absolutely. Uh, I was Superman every day. I woke up nice. and flew to the bathroom. Uh, I flew to breakfast, then I flew to work, and if I had to go to the bathroom during the day, I flew while I was going to the bathroom. So, um, <laughs> it's so great. Hey, how it's how so hard great. is it to fall asleep when you're when there's no gravity? 
Um, you know, at first it was tougher because of the noise. So, you know, there are fans that always run and there are, uh, you know, like in your house, if you're sleeping, you, you get used to the white noise. Um, mm -hmm. But if you sleep in a hotel room or some a guest house somewhere and you hear that fan go, ee, 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 yeah. it drives Ugh. you crazy, right, till you fall asleep. Well, it's the same on the space station, except those things are constant and they tell you that you're alive and that you're surviving and that everything works, right? It's when oh, you gotcha. don't hear those noises that you go, oh. And so uh -huh. I slept really well. Uh, I had an experiment, actually, a sleep experiment watch that I wore um, that would tell me at the end of my mission that I averaged seven hours and 20 minutes of sleep every night. And Dang. I don't think I get that on earth. Um, and sleeping <laughs> in zero gravity with your arms out like this is you pretty cool. You were built for this. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I think. But the only, the only problem with, with sleeping was you can get back pain because in zero gravity, your, your vertebra stretch, right? Oh, wow. And so then yeah. those ligaments that hold your spine together, those stretch and they can become painful. So sometimes you have to compress your hands and feet and push yourself to squish yourself back down for a while to take that pressure off. Or I would curl up in a ball in my sleeping bag for a while because you're weightless, right? So the zipper mm -hmm. can hold hold your uh, knees up by your chest without problem. And so that would take some of that pressure off. But uh, for the most part, I slept really well. Uh, it was really dark in my sleep station. It was really cold because the air conditioner was right there and it was constantly blowing and sleep was good. The only thing was peeing if you had to pee in the middle of the night. That was difficult yeah. because especially on a weekend, right, when I didn't have to get up and the the bathroom was all the way at the other end of the station in the Russian segment. So you flew through the lab module, which was freezing cold. Then you went through the uh, the uh, node module, which was you know, kind of tepid. Then you go through the FGB Russian module, which was hot. And then you get in their service module where the bathroom was, which was freezing cold again. So by the time you got there and took a leak, I was wide awake. And so I flew back and I couldn't go to sleep. So on the weekends, I would diaper up and I'd be floating there. And if I had to pee, just, just let it go. Dang. And right back to sleep. <laughs> I'm gonna have to adapt that here <laughs> on Earth. Yeah, you look like Rubric from. Uh, <laughs> you look like Rubric right there with your hands out. Rubric from uh, 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 Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Like, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> Thank you. Hey, um, uh, that what you just said struck me too. I mean, I'm I'm just naive about all this stuff. So you got the weekends off. It's like for us, it's no like you know, hey, we got the weekend off. This is great. Saturday night, we're gonna or Friday night, we're, we're gonna, gonna live go to it movies. up, and then we're gonna go yeah, play around <laughs> what, the golf. <laughs> yeah, what are so, you doing up there? <laughs> yeah, what do you do on the weekends in space? I guess go for another walk, right? Go for another space walk. No, no, we got. I mean, we got half a Saturday off because we had to do cleaning, house cleaning, right? Um, which meant you vacuumed all the goober off the vents and you, you're supposed to wipe everything down, but that's just a waste of a good wipe because if I wiped all the handrails and stuff, surfaces, Fyodor and Oleg and I were going to touch it immediately anyway. So that never made right. sense to me. So if a new crew was coming, I wiped everything down. And once they left, I wiped everything down. But I didn't do that right. normally. So NASA probably, I don't think I told them I wasn't doing it. Um, so what they didn't know didn't hurt them. Um, but the Sunday was our total day off, but you still had your, uh, exercise time, which was two and a half hours. You had, um, a video conference on Sunday with your family, which was really nice. That's uh, so cool. You had time to just chill or do whatever you wanted. We took a lot of photographs on Sundays. Um, mm -hmm. Saturday was still pretty busy and a lot of astronauts did what they called Saturday science. 
if they wanted to, they could clean for half a day and do a science experiment for the other half. And I said, no way I'm doing that. I'm taking my time off. So I didn't do any Saturday science. And then um, Sundays were chill days. And I, that's when I wrote um, things that would end up in my book. So I was kind of writing stories about what I was experiencing so that I'd have a record. Yeah, we're hanging out with Clayton Anderson, astronaut, author. Again, the book, again, is uh, The Ordinary Spaceman. And we're having a good time talking about being in space. And you guys have a limited payload when you guys are able to go to space. Was there anything unique that you packed with you to take to space? And do you still have it? Uh, yes. And I would send you guys to astroclay.com. And then you can click on my YouTube channel. If you go to my YouTube channel... There's a video called Wide World of Sports, and that's mm -hmm. one of the favorite videos I made. And you guys may like this because I had a Nebraska football that I took up nice. that Tom Osborne gave me, right? And mm -hmm. so I deflated that and then inflated it when I got to space, so I had to take the air pump and the needle. I have a baseball um, that I flew, and my second flight I took a College World Series baseball from the final College World Series nice. at Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha. Rosenblatt. That the, that the NCAA gave me, and then my crew signed, all my crew signed the baseball, which we returned then, and it's in the stadium in Omaha at, it's called Schwab Field now, but yeah. apparently it's not on display where anybody can see it, it's in the freaking offices, so it's like, what the, <laughs> what are you on. doing, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but there's a video of Wide awesome. World of Sports where I, where I throw the, the most perfect knuckleball you've ever seen <laughs> right at the camera. It's a strike. You should check it out. Um, Got I to. kick a field goal with with no holder. Um, stuff like that. It, it, just fun things That's that so show awesome. kids the idea of sports and zero gravity. And we had a basketball, a Nerf basketball hoop. And instead of playing pig, we played ISS. And, of course, you have to bank it off of surfaces to get it even close to going in the, the basket. So. That's outstanding. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that sports is universal. I mean, we talk about that, but I mean, just the fact that you've already alluded to this, that you may not have been, you know, astronaut material to go back up again, but you're, you're our kind of guy for sure. I mean, that's, that's, uh, definitely that's, uh, you need to, I mean, jobs are serious enough. I've been in the work world long enough to know now that you got to bring your own personality and your own determination and your own interest to the job. And if you don't have that kind of job, then you may may want to go find something else to do. But um, yeah, I mean, incredible stories and certainly uh, incredible passion. But I think the biggest lesson and my biggest takeaway is the fact that you, uh, the fact that you have. Um, been able to be yourself and do all of this, which is is you know, just incredible. Ah, there you go. So I want to show you one thing. So this mm. N, which for those that are not accustomed, stands for knowledge. <clears throat> <laughs> That's right. And uh, this is a Nebraska football helmet uh, given to me by Trev Alberts, the current um, athletic ah. director at Nebraska. But the unique thing is this N right here mm -hmm. flew in outer space for 152 days. And I brought it home. Uh, Coach Osborne gave it to me before I left. He gave me a sleeve of them. So I had like, I don't know, 10. And this one nice. came home uh, and is on this helmet, which will be displayed in our museum. I'm doing a football display that honors the Military Academy football teams with some of their special uniforms. Um, so cool. We're working on putting the display together. But this will be a centerpiece, right, because it's Nebraska. And the museum's in Nebraska. And people love their football. But the end flew in space. 
Um, there is also another end that's still on the space station that I have not divulged its location. As, as nice, of this you moment. snuck it on there and it slapped uh -huh. it on something. Nice, uh -huh. and it, nice. it is in a very, so great. Uh, a very, a place that's very important to me. Not the toilet, nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, but that's no funny. one's found it, right? And and that's why it's there because I know unless they when go they find looking, it, they won't yeah. find it, right? So. Yeah. Uh, if the space station ever drops out of the sky, that's when I'll divulge where I put it. But you, hey, Clay, you you would fit right in in a, in any clubhouse that I've ever been in. Seriously. That's incredible. <laughs> you sticking stuff in there. We used to put signs over the you know the handicap urinal, the shortest guy on the team. Like in this case, you'd put like Altuve over there, you know, and just you know, and that's his urinal. And you know, after a while, it gets a little salty, but you know, it's it's all it's all in good fun. It's all in good fun. I want to ask you a more serious question, which is because. Out here in California, USC and UCLA, right? USC is a football school. UCLA is a basketball school. They don't change. When I was growing up, I'm a little maybe hopefully, uh, I don't know, older than I look. But, uh, you know, Nebraska and Oklahoma were the teams. You know, Barry Switzer and Tom Osborne we've mentioned already. And that was the rivalry, man. Jamel Holloway and you had, you know, your Tommy Frazier's and those guys. And they were running the triple option. But Dude, Darren Erskine, let's being, go. Darren, well, he's a baseball guy and a punter. Come on, a punter. You can't. And a you know. husker. But, and a husker. He's big but, time. That's right. But I will say, how, I mean, how does, because you already mentioned it's a big deal in Nebraska football, but man, it's been, it's been uh, quite some time. I mean, we know the football playoff is going to be Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State, but how do the Huskers <laughs> become the, how do the Huskers become the fourth team in there? Like Trev Alberts, obviously a, a superstar linebacker for the team and was on ESPN for a while and he wants to reinvigorate and I know they've had some transition, but how, I mean, do you see a path forward for the Nebraska football team? How do they get back to being maybe even a top 10 team or a national powerhouse? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know that I'm uniquely qualified to answer, but I am a passionate Husker fan. Uh, I, like many, thought that Scott Frost's return would be would be the answer, right? That would be the way. Yeah. But uh, obviously that didn't work out. I think there, there's an issue today that you have to have the right guy at the helm, obviously. Uh, he has to stay there long enough to make appropriate changes to keep it kind of going down the same path. I think this uh, Matt Rule guy, uh, my son played against Baylor at Iowa State, <clears throat> and so I got to watch uh, watch them. Um, one of Cole's rival uh, shot put discus throwers in high school um, from Cole's school district played for lineman for uh, Matt Rule at Baylor, and they were very successful. You know, he turned them around, and uh, the optimism here is high. Uh, he's recruiting kids from Nebraska, which, you know, that's always been a staple, at least from my perspective of, you know, you got to keep the kids, the good kids that mm -hmm. want to play, right? Because it's that passion, again, to play for the Big Red. I wanted to be a Husker. Uh, I was a pretty good punter in high school, um, but I, when I learned that uh, calculus class would have like 250 kids in it, I about crapped my pants and I went to Hastings College so I could play football, basketball, and run track, mm -hmm. right, at a smaller college. But I'm optimistic. Um, I'm anxious to see what they can do this year. Uh, the fact that Trev Alberts is there, uh, Coach Osborne comes to my museum every quarter with his teammates' organization to have their board meetings, so I get to see T.O., uh, which is very special to me. Um, 
he was one of my idols growing up and now he's a, I can call him a friend like Blummer. I mean, holy crap that I'm doing this with you guys uh, is, is incredible to me. So nice. those relationships and, and that uh, the history of Nebraska and the fans is what that's the constant. And we have to do something to put a product on the field that at least entertains. Um, can he do it? I think he can. I'm optimistic, right? We'll see what he does his first year. Uh, I'm hoping for six or seven wins. Um, maybe he gets more with a couple breaks down the road, but you know, it's so equitable across with when we play one year as the starting quarterback at Oklahoma and you transfer the next year to USC. Well, how the, how the hell does that, you know, <clears throat> and who wants to come to Nebraska in the winter time? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a question no. that, well, hey, well, the answer to that is if you're winning, winning is the cure of all <laughs> yes. weather, of all evil, of all everything. And it's just a matter of going out there and winning. You know, now that we're on the, the, the aspect of sports, I know that you spent a lot of time in Houston. How did you become such – you played baseball, but was the, were the Astros always your team or was it somebody else? And how did you build this affinity for the Astros organization? I love all the Astro sports. So I came in 81 was my first year in Houston and I went to the dome and I watched, uh, Archie Manning and I watched, uh, Billy white shoes. And I watched, I watched uh, Alonzo Highsmith run a kickoff back for a touchdown one year in the dome. And, and so I love the Oilers and Warren moon and all, all that great stuff. I loved it. I still do. I love the Texans. I love JJ Watt. I love all of it. Um, mm -hmm. then, uh, as a baseball guy, you know that was this was back in the Nepper, the Nolan Ryan. Uh, they had some strong some dudes that could play, and, and I'm a big Dickie Thon fan, right? The bless his heart, yeah. he got hit with that pitch and, and never was the same. And he would have been an incredible Houston Astro. Uh, I was good enough to know what, when I saw good talent, right? Um, and I actually sold uh, programs the year they made it to the uh, championship series, and they lost um, there in the end. Uh, I was selling programs <laughs> to try to do a fundraiser for a club I was in down in Clear Lake and got to watch Nolan throw that night and then Nepper threw his his great game. And and then I think we – I can't remember how we got beat. It's been so long, but it was some deal, the 16-inning game, you know, all that great stuff. Yeah, that was 86 against the Mets. Yep. But they, even that 80 series, 1980 against the Phillies, was one of those epic battles where they yes. played 30 innings to get through some of those games. And my dad was a Phillies fan, so that was important to us oh, then, wow. and I wasn't in Houston. Um, but I refereed college basketball, which tied me to the Rockets eventually, as I would get to referee for the Rockets during their championship runs, their two-year championship runs, as a practice official for their uh, preseason pre training, their pre-playoff training. And then after they beat the Knicks the first year to win the championship, then I got to go to the Summit the next year and referee for all the season ticket holders in their final scrimmage of the se of the year before they open the season. Um, and so, and that was really cool. I mean, I oh, remember wow. Colin traveling on Akeem Olajuwon. I did not travel. Wow. Ref, I did not travel. <laughs> and he, he looks at Kenny Smith and he says, Kenny, tell him, I did not travel. I ain't getting involved, <laughs> dream. And then he looks at Mr. Mean, Mike, what, Michael Smith, right? No, Mr. Mean. Oh, oh God. Oh, gosh. I can't. Anyway. I wish I was better with Houston basketball. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> he, looks, he looks at him and he goes, tell him, I did not travel. And he goes, oh, yeah, Keem, you travel every time. You know, and A resident then, Houston uh, historian knows who it is. Who is it? Larry Smith. Oh, Larry Smith. Larry Smith. 
There yeah. you go. So, Thanks, Marco. <laughs> so I had all that great time with those sports, but then baseball was my fave because I had a son. And, and my mm-hmm. son could throw heat. He just – no one – I could never find a coach to teach him how to throw heat. Um, and he tried out for baseball at his new high school as a freshman, and he was six foot four, and he could throw BBs. But he threw him like Nolan in the early days all over the place. <laughs> but when he was on, he could throw it. And Lights out. And, and he loved baseball. And he went to try out, and he hit like two doubles that day in hitting. And I didn't go. I didn't, you know, like some of the dads who were in the stands, eyeballing their kids and sucking up to mm-hmm. the coaches and helping to draw the lines and all that. I didn't do that. And he went and he had a – I'd heard from others he had a pretty damn good tryout. And he walked up to the door on the high school where they taped the name of the kids who made it. And he his name wasn't on the list. He never touched a baseball damn. again. Never. Damn. And he could play. If somebody would have – you know, if if I'm a coach in high school and I see a six foot four freshman that can throw heat, I'm putting my arm around him saying, son, we're going to work on you. Right? Yeah, we'll figure yeah. this out. And, and let alone the pedigree. He's got a dad who went to space and like worked yeah. his ass off to get there. Why not take that kid? But yeah, it, that was sad. But but he and I love baseball. He and I were in the in the Minute Maid Park um, the day Chris Burke hit the home run in the bottom oh, wow. of the whatever inning. Cole it was, was like the 18th inning uh, against the Braves. Yeah. And he was trying to sleep on a girder because they they cut down the food. You couldn't get any food or any drink, you know, after the seventh inning. And and my kid was starving and he was tired and he was dead. Can we go home? And I said, let's watch the Stroh's bat one more time. And son <laughs> of a gun, he, Bert came up and he hit the, the home run. And my son was li- loving. He jumped up. He was screaming. Oh, he was catching all the confetti. I mean, it was the greatest experience ever. And I got to be in Minute Maid Park as an astro- baby astronaut before the grass was ever put down when Drayton McClain and uh, – Jose Lima, a couple of us astronauts got to go tour Minute Maid. And Jose uh-huh. Lima was there. And I remember we were in the locker room and nobody been in there yet, right? And Drayton McLean's there. And Jose Lima says, hey, Drayton, how do I get that locker? <clears throat> I want that locker. And Drayton says, 20 <laughs> games, you can have any locker you want, dude. <laughs> and yeah, there you go. It, it was, he won 20, I, mean, I think, in 1999, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm in the midst of what I consider greatness and, and I don't feel like I deserve to be cause I'm just an astronaut, but then to, to meet Jeff and to be a part of, uh, I had access to world series tickets that I never thought I would get access to and to be able to go and watch them play and, and watch them go from the shitty Astros to the world champions. That's <laughs> yeah, you, pretty you've special. Been through it. That's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, you never thought you'd be a part of it, but I know how you did it. You did it by being yourself. I promise you that. Oh, well, thank you. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't I don't believe in trying to be anybody other than who I am, right? And and the person that too made difficult. me. Yeah. And the people that made me are are right back here where I'm I'm at at home now. So uh, it's time to give back. And I know that that's important for athletes. Uh, yeah. Would I love to have a million bucks to give to, to some kids to buy them new sports equipment? You're damn right I would, but I can't. And But now I'm here in a position where I can create educational experiences at a museum that will hopefully inspire kids for years to come. And they can be, they can learn that they are just like me, right? They can that's be. A, that's a beautiful sentiment because there needs to be that belief that it can happen. You can achieve that dream. Tell us a little bit about your museum and where you're at right now. 
the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum is in Ashland, Nebraska, between Omaha and Lincoln, which is my hometown on Interstate 80. Um, the museum has been here, well, it's been a museum, well, let me back up. In 1959, they started to collect airplanes at Offutt Air Force Base in Bellevue, Nebraska, but they collected them on the tarmac and they got bird nests and raccoons and snakes living in them and, and they were being destroyed. The Air Force said, you can't do that anymore with our relic planes. You got to keep them up to date. And so some very visionary and very wealthy people built the museum that I'm sitting in right now. And its doors opened in 1998 in May, one month before NASA called to ask me to become uh, their first astronaut from Nebraska. Um, my uncle is the mayor of Ashland. <laughs> uh, my sister lives about it. just down the road. My brother is in Omaha. Uh, my son, Cole, uh, he, his, he was from Iowa State, right? And his wife was a swimmer at ISU and they got married and now they bought a house in Omaha because she's a resident doctor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dang. he's a, a finance guy for Bridges Trust in Omaha. So, you know, with my brother, my sister, my uncle, my kid, uh, all back in the mm -hmm. area, it, it was, home was calling pretty pretty well. And and also the, the, the need for me to be here running this museum to take it into the next 25 years. So um, anybody that wants to come to my museum, our museum, it's great. Uh, hey, you might just meet an astronaut when you come. So... <laughs> Well, what That's a deal. Outstanding. <laughs> and, and tell everybody where they can find you on social media because you are a pretty good follow. And a lot of those pictures that you've been talking about throughout the course of this podcast, you actually post them online. Yes. Um, I love to share that way. Um, astroclay.com is my website. Uh, but you can find me if you Google astroclay, you will find everything. You'll find the Instagram, the Facebook, the Twitter. I do TikTok occasionally. Um, really? But those, yeah, those four primary. Uh, I did do a, two seasons of a podcast, which is called The Making of an Ordinary Spaceman. But if you go to astroclay.com and then you can look at my YouTube and all those socials, uh, you'll find everything you want to know about me and probably more than you want to know about me. <laughs> You're way ahead of the curve. I've, I don't even know Seriously. what TikTok is. So good grief. <laughs> it's the noise your watch makes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Not anymore. It doesn't. I just haven't. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah. All right. We appreciate you coming on. I've got two questions for you before we we let you go. This has been outstanding. Uh, the conversation's been great. I've been selfishly. This is why we do the podcast to have access to people like you, Clay. So I appreciate <laughs> you coming on. But uh, I don't know if Tuttle has any more questions. But I've got two questions for you. What's your favorite sports movie? Ooh. If I say comedy, I'd say Major League. Yep, good one. Um, but I also liked, and I watched this one on the International Space Station for the first time, For the Love of the Game. How about that? Yeah. Nice. That was a good one. Kevin Costner, Clear the yep. Mechanism. Yep. Yeah. That's and, a good and, one. Yeah, and watching it in space makes it doubly good. <laughs> say, not too many people can say that, I guarantee you. You might be the only one that can say that. All right. I was going to say, I want to give then, it a try sometime. <laughs> yeah, hey, right. Tell Costner, tell Costner for, for, what you see him. Yeah, tell him I want to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> that would be outstanding. And my second one is, it's kind of funny, you know, everybody asks Tuttle and I, what's our favorite sports movie? So I've got to ask you, what is your favorite space movie? Do you have one? I do. Um, I'd say Apollo 13 because it was filmed uh, on the Vomit Comet. So the scenes that show zero gravity are actually <laughs> zero gravity. 
Uh, it's mm -hmm. funny, I, I was also involved with Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood and Tommy Lee Jones and Donald Sutherland and uh, How cool. James Garner, yeah. right? And those guys, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, my wife showed Donald Sutherland around. She was his horse holder. And I was a baby astronaut, so I got to go to the premiere, and I got to meet all of them and chat with them. And Clint Eastwood, I asked him, I said, Mr. Eastwood, why the hell didn't you do the Vomit Comet like they did on Apollo 13? He goes, Clayton, that's too damn expensive. I can't afford that. <laughs> and so, you know, to be with these these freaking heroes and watching mm -hmm. Tommy Lee Jones sitting in the back of the movie theater, you know, the scene where he gets on the front of the rocket and it flies him to the moon, you know, and he all that BS, right? But he's, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is in the back of the movie crying on that scene, right? It's like, dude, wow, you can't be crying. There's no crying in space flight. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Pretty cool. I've been blessed. I did have one question. Sure. That, huh. that I, I won't include on the, on the podcast, but how are there still <laughs> flat earthers? That's what I want to respond. I love it. That's a great question. <laughs> this is keep this on. Yeah. If, if the earth hell, isn't flat, Mark. How people can be flat earthers, you know, it's like uh, I jerk their chain. You know, they'll reach out to me on social media. A lot of astronauts will blow them off and ignore them. Right? I jerk their chain. <clears throat> you know, and, and what institution did you go for your college degree? I'd, I'd really like to call the alumni office and thank them and perhaps give a donation or something like that, right? And, <laughs> but then they, they come back and they got 50,000 memes that they've got set up and they're going to bash you with all their stupid memes and their ridiculous stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But there are also people that, you know, uh, that believe we never went to space, we never went to the moon, and, you know, I'm here to tell you – we sure as hell did. <laughs> so I don't know, right? And they vote too, right? Most of them. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they freedom. don't. But you're right. Yeah. Freedom. <laughs> Clay, this has just been an honor for me. I know you and Blum have known each other for a bit, but uh, I mean, it's just great to get to know you. The reason we started this podcast is. Like he said, selfishly to get to meet people like you, um, even though you seem to be more honored to meet all these other people. But I mean, just the example you set, and I mean, these are the the kind of the values that we we raised our kids with, right? You know, be yourself, have a dream, be humble, and you know, you're very entertaining. And it's just been a pleasure to meet you, and we're really excited to have you on the podcast. And I don't see how we can't have you come on again. I don't no. see. <laughs> Yeah, I would. I would love to. I I love doing this. I love sharing stories, and um, you know, I got to get with Blummer on the golf course. That's been something I want to do for a long time. But now that I'm in Omaha, there's some great tracks up here, Blum. And I'm gonna have to make that trip. <laughs> but I can come back. I'll be coming back to Houston periodically. But uh, I know how busy you guys are. But it's an honor. It's a privilege, and I'm happy to share with you guys whenever you you need a another guest. We appreciate you. Congratulations on a great career, both in space and here <laughs> on Earth. Uh, you've done a great job, and we uh, express a great deal of gratitude for being on our podcast here. Clayton C. Anderson, astronaut <laughs> and uh, proprietor of the museum out there in Nebraska. We greatly appreciate you. Be well, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Tell uh, TK and Barry Warner and all the boys at River Oaks Country Club that I missed the you little- You need to get down there and be there for one of those uh, one of those uh, pep rallies we have. They'd love to see you. <laughs> I know. That, that would be fun. I'll, I'll be working on that down the road. And uh, uh, I still need to meet Julia, though. See? The <laughs> well, if you're nice enough to me, I know how to, I know how to get you in contact. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you guys. Thank thanks you for everything, Clayton. Yeah, take care, man. You bet. 
All right. I hope you enjoy that as much as I did because my voice is now shot after talking so much space with Clayton C. Anderson. But uh, Tuttle, do you have any takeaways from uh, that chat we just had with uh, an actual astronaut? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like all of us, we say this as we get older, right? We wish we knew then what we know now. But uh, I mean, he got rejected 14 times in terms of trying to be, you know, become an astronaut, which was a lifelong dream. And the 15th time was the magic number. But I think, you know, Blum, we consistently uh, talk about this in the bleachers, but he... He is himself through and through, and I think the listeners will get a good handle on that. And uh, I just, I'm just, I'm just blown away. I mean, he's so reverent of you know being able to meet you, a guy who hit a home run in the World <laughs> Series, and so reverent of meeting these actors that were trying to imitate him on the on the screen. And he just, uh, he's just a really humble guy, which is something I've always aspired to be. But uh, just, I mean, just what a joy. So I hope the listeners really. Um, get a lot from the interview, but also realize that uh, this new format is going to be beneficial for all of us. And I'm excited to, again, have these diverse guests on our podcast and learn from them, which, you know, that's what life's about, constantly learning. What about you, Blummer? You've met him before, but what were your takeaways from the, uh, from the uh, interview? You know what? I love the fact that you brought up, you know, he has that certain reverence for everybody else around him. And then the understanding that he's actually been off the face of this earth. That's a, it still blows my mind that this guy has been up in a space station for five months and he comes back with the humility to say, man, it's great meeting you, you know, you guys, thank you for having me on the podcast. You know, there's a certain humility that I think kind of runs through this podcast that we appreciate everything that we've done. And we now get to appreciate what other people have done and we'll find people in business. We'll find people people who have played the game, and they're all going to have the same kind of humility to it. But that's one of the things that kind of jumps out to me, and uh, it, it sticks out. These guys have done the extraordinary. Even though his book is called The Ordinary Spaceman, he has done the extraordinary, yet they appreciate everything they've done. And I just love the stories of hard work, inspiration, and dreaming big. And that's kind of what we do here on the podcast is try and encourage that. And maybe that's where we start to angle a lot of these interviews is, you know, how do you inspire yourself? How do you lead? How do you, how do you get this done? And the parallel between business, space, sports, it, it's, it's, there's a common theme and it's a humility and work ethic, I think, that kind of jumps out to me. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. Life. I mean, you know, this is how we live life, but I, I think you're right. The work ethic, the grit, and the humility is a good way to live life. And I think we've talked about it on this podcast before. Um, we want to leave you with the fact that obviously he had said he'd gone to survival training in Wyoming. He's gone to survival training in Russia. <laughs> but uh, it did bring, again, the military um, kind of crossover between what astronauts do and what the military does. His fear of actually leaving the Earth got... Uh, trained out of him. And it just reminds us of the military that takes care of our borders, takes care of us and provides the, uh, the blanket of freedom, which would with, with which we're allowed to be able to do this podcast. So we greatly appreciate that greatly appreciate, appreciate obviously Clayton coming on, but reminding us of, uh, the service that he's done and the service that military have done and first responders, you know, we mentioned firefighters being a childhood dream as well. Police, fire, uh, teachers obviously have the summer off, but, um, healthcare workers, all the people that are able to, um, maybe do the extraordinary in an ordinary career. So, uh, we appreciate you. If you're over the age of 45, please don't forget to get screened for colorectal cancer. Blummer, got anything else? You got only got two things left. Get after it and believe it. <laughs> believe it.
You can say what you want. No, I was just giving Mark a hard time for still being a flat earther. 